Welcome back to the Startwell podcast. For this episode, we're sitting down in studio at Startwell on King Street West with Eric Shoyal and John Sinopoli from the Ascari Hospitality Group. So, okay, so you guys start, you know, your partnership, you meet each other. Mm. The chef joins the front man. Mm-hmm. You found a Japanese izakaya in a city that was still finding its culinary, you know, interests. Uh, you were early, you were ahead of the game. And then um, 50 staff, suddenly you're a whirlwind of a operations nightmare with that restaurant. Uh, and uh, when it ends, very quickly, you find something that's a bit of a kind of a slower pace that's more manageable. And, uh, and you start having fun. Maybe a little I think bit more. It was together. always fun. There mm-hmm. was always it was always fun. There were there's different degrees of stress and there's different degrees of challenges. Right. I think managing table seventeen still had its huge challenges, even though it was a smaller team. They were just different. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, Isakai was open for three years and had a lot of success in many ways. I think that a uh, couple of the mistakes we made were maybe the size. The neighborhood things that just the first operators and the experience we provided in like year one was very different from the experience we were providing by the end. But by that time, I think the hole might have been a bit deep and the the traction wasn't wasn't there. But with table seventeen, the the motivation was do what you know, right? And we knew the food and experience we were going to provide there. Like it was a very European continental cuisine that was rooted in Italian and French and an experience that Eric and I are both very familiar and comfortable with. Not that we weren't familiar with the Izakai experience. We were... Because you lived in Japan. I did live in Japan and Eric was very familiar with a similar concept in in England when he lived there. And I think that um, the challenge was how could we communicate that experience where people were going to believe us that this is this was and with table 17 it was right. a lot easier because of our backgrounds and our roots and and so like people walk into an izakaya <clears throat> and uh yeah. it's a white guy saying oh yeah I mean, and they're no, like what the hell have, is going on we did right. have, of course have you know very strong japanese team in the back of house and, and the front and the front as well like we had and to be honest at the time too there was a fraction of the japanese immigrants in toronto than there are now like now right. there's a whole community of young japanese people who own restaurants and do do right. that and bring their culture here at the time wasn't the case so we like they, i remember they came to us like the mm. yeah like there was like one little five-page Japanese newspaper in Toronto, you know, and and they had us featured a couple times and that helped us get some great employees. But Table 17 was a, a change in pace in a few ways. Like, we went to a neighborhood. Yeah. We're making personal relationships, relationships and connections with our clientele. Those were lasting relationships. It's very different from the St. Lawrence Market neighborhood experience, which was more touristy, more like, you know, daytime people. And then they would leave and go home. And there was a few people that lived around there, but not like now. So going to a neighborhood, we, it, was a, it was a different approach to connecting with your clientele. 100%. Yeah, lots of lessons, I'm sure, as restaurateurs coming from being the neighborhood restaurant mm-hmm. and having regulars actually mm-hmm. live around the corner and think of using, you know, something that they rely on in the neighborhood yeah. too. Well, I mean, as a re- as a restaurateurs, those those lessons are every day. They continue to this day. Right. We're still learning lessons every single day. It's yeah, because it's such a hydra business. This it's so dynamic. Yeah. And um, and so okay, so table seventeen lasted, or it's still around. No, we had we had, table seventeen lasted till two thousand. It went from oh eight to to two thousand sixteen. Okay. Yeah, so it was just about eight, eight years. Just under eight years. Yeah. And then was that the point where Ascari was born? No, that had been born a couple of years prior. Um, 2011. 2000, end of 2010, I believe. Yeah, so we opened, no, we opened December 2011. Was it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Three years after. It's all we, a blur. Three years it after. Yeah, it three years blur. after we opened Table 17, a local businessman and landlord that we knew who also opened, owned restaurants uh, said, hey, I got this space. Come take a look. And then we kind of, kind of immediately knew what we wanted to do. It was it was a great compliment to what we were doing at Table Seventeen, and um, it was still a small neighborhood restaurant, which was great. Mm-hmm. We we knew we we were good at that now. And then um, from there, 
Ascari, let's let's bring it up to the last couple of years, mm-hmm. but like up till like 2019, uh, where where did you guys see? I guess you know 2018, 19. Where did you see um, the future for Ascari being? Was it a brand that was going to extrapolate into becoming a quote unquote you know hospitality group mm-hmm. as now? That or? was always the intention. Okay. Um, I think. I mean, things evolve, and you have different ideas about how you want to you know forge ahead in the future. Um, but we always thought that the Ascari brand was really, really strong. Right. Um, it represented a lot of things that that are close to both of us. Um, and so, yeah, we always had the feeling that Ascari and Oteca on Queen Street East was not going to be just that. There was going to be more to it. Right. Um, and so it evolved. But it, but it's it's taken different turns along the way, like... We opened Ascari on Queen Street. Then we opened a bar called Hilo, again, like right across the street from Table 17. So we had these right. three little places in the East End. And then we got into, <clears throat> we got involved in the um, development of the Broadview Hotel. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, we were, mm-hmm. we we developed the, you know, the F&B program um, for that hotel for, and we worked on that project for know, a long time, probably two and a half years before it opened. So now tell me what you know about, the history of the Broadview Hotel. Oh, we know a lot. We, yeah. we we were there from like the demolition through the entire build and and a lot of the history because you know as the operators you know we were deep into the story of the project right, right? and, and right. as the F and B oper- portion of the operators there so yeah there, there's yeah. a lot a lot of histories. I forget the guy. I forget the guy that the 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 name of the gentleman that actually built what is the Broadview Hotel today, but. It's been a few years, but Dunham, I think, was yeah, Dunham Soap Company. It, yeah, it was a so he was a soap manufacturer in the East End. My and great grandfather was a soap man. Oh yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so the East End was this really sort of you know the, the turn of the last century, or I guess like the late eighteen hundreds. Queen and Broadview area was a really sort of cool, hip and happening place. There were lots of hotels. There were vaudeville theaters. There was all. It was a lot of action around there, and that's mm. where a lot of like. Um, you know, salesmen, traveling salesmen would go. And that's where the, that would be the sort of the hub before they would cross the Don Valley and go into Toronto to sell their wares and do whatever it was. The Brooklyn of Toronto. Kind of, yeah, very much so. And um, and this guy, Dunham, I, f- I forget his first name, but anyway, built this place. Um, and he quickly, shortly thereafter, actually moved out to um, to Alberta. And he was the first person in Canada to drill an oil well in Alberta. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That mm-hmm. is very I mean, interesting. It's been a long time since I've gone through mm-hmm. that, that, all the history there. So I've, some of it I've forgotten. But the Broadview Hotel and that particular neighborhood of uh, uh, Broadview and Queen has got a really, really rich history. And it was also home to the original cycling club mm-hmm. in toronto like mm-hmm. of, of like cycling racers in the winter on like the top floor they had like an oval track that they'd practice of that on. hotel yeah that well it wasn't a hotel at the time it didn't become a hotel until the early 1900s like 1910 or something yeah. so it was like an office building it's called the lincoln the lincoln yeah they called it the lincoln hotel that was the name of the first when they converted it to rooms hmm. but previous to that it was like off like a bank on the main floor offices and the top floor was the royal canadian cycling club which was an offshoot of the famous Royal Canadian Curling Club, which exists across oh, the street. street. But the Royal Canadian oh. Curling Club started on the frozen Don River, just like a like half a kilometer away. Right. And then, so that area was like very rich and- furtive. Yeah, very active socially. Place. And across the street on the south side of Queen there would have been Sun Life Field, which is a great, huge baseball stadium hmm. where I believe like some of the greats like Babe Ruth played in at oh, the yeah. time. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like, there's a lot of cool sporting cultural history within a kilometer of that building. So right. south of, on Broadview, I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but south of <clears throat> any Queens, topic is a topic. Oh, cool. <laughs> is the topic. Um, <clears throat> so just, if you go, uh, s- south of Queen street on Broadview on the west side of that street used to be, the 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 wall of the field and baseball fields weren't diamond shaped back then they were sort of more like rectangular shaped oh and there's photographs of people that would come down and watch the baseball games down there and they would line the the fence of the field with their horse and buggies and everybody would be standing and watching the game on top of like the horse carriages wow yeah like it's the amount of history um 
uh, about, well, Toronto in general, but particularly in the East End of Toronto, all the changes that have happened over the last like 120, 150 years. Right. It's, it is fascinating. And I hope it doesn't get lost because it's, it's, it's really, really And of course, cool. the more recent history before the Bravi Hotel was Jilly's. Of course, many people of our generation will remember that. Yeah, uh, ven- I never venue. went. I never went there. Yeah, never. I'll say it on camera, <laughs> on microphone. And CD strip club. Yeah, oh yeah. And there was like room for rent by the week upstairs, so the demo was very interesting, and there was many rooms with fifteen, twenty layers of wallpaper on the wow. wall. And as the designers peeled back the wallpaper, they found some cool patterns that they incorporated into the the the, the design of the actual hotel, which was was a really fun and um but really the building was stripped to the bricks not even the i wouldn't like the framing all the wood it was all gone they re-poured everything below they dug out the basement the whole thing was refooted hmm. and the structure was created anew um because they added of course the rooftop bar and right and it's, it was an incredible construction project to be a part of and, and to to see and help you know design the back house portions and and the, the dining rooms and to try to you know bring a vibrancy back to the, the, that cultural hub and I think that project really did a lot for the the neighborhood and establishing it as a, a, an important cultural location in Toronto. It's so interesting because like the to be part of that recycling of history in a sense where you know maybe obviously because these are young cities here in Canada. Toronto and East Toronto being not that old, but in its foundation years, you know, having so much of this colorful kind of life in the neighborhood and then it fall in a dilapidation and now the pinnacle property being, or one of the pinnacle hospitality properties mm-hmm. in the neighborhood being this hotel that was a strip club at its, mm-hmm. I don't know, lowest, highest. It depends on the night you're having. It was a cabaret for like, I mean, 30, 40 years we're talking. It was the, the longest running thing in that building was Jilly's like for, right. for in, yeah. in its lifetime yeah. very with, successful without business. a doubt without a doubt but I remember like I had a veg supplier vegetable supplier who used to live much further east and would have to take the streetcar when he was a kid in the 60s mm-hmm. to go through Riverside and he says I used to duck my head below the windows of the streetcar when we went through that neighborhood because it was so rough right and there was people throwing things and there was Fights and brawls would right. like pour out of this bars the, on the that, street, yeah. And like you would never see that happen today in any neighborhood, no matter how rough. And he's like, "Oh no, it was rough. Like beer bottles being like tossed at people on the street and stuff." He's like, "Yeah, you duck down and like make yourself unseen going through that neighborhood on the streetcar till you cross the bridge, right, back into like the downtown Toronto." This is always the aesthetic impression I've had of that neighborhood. It's still to this day, there's a little edginess to it, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of. I don't know. It's interesting. It's not so edgy. Kind of soft curves, I'd call them today. Yeah. (laughs) And you guys have seen that again. But even, I mean, when we opened Table 17 in 2008, there was still some, Mm -hmm. there was still some, some solid grit there for sure. There I mean, were needles they, to be cleaned up in the backyard for sure. Yeah. yeah, it was a definite, you know, it was, there was, there was some action happening there. And mm-hmm. even when we were renovating, you know, we'd have guys come down that had nicked, um, you know, five gallon cans of primer paint and they'd be trying to <laughs> sell tr- their flogging, tr- trying to sell us the primer paint while oh. the, while the shopkeeper from three blocks away was hustling down the street trying to get his primer back. Um, so there was definitely some interesting, interesting times but that neighborhood's changed a lot i mean it's it's a phenomenal neighborhood it's mm-hmm. tons of young families there's lots of great you know s- stores and restaurants and and you know you walk around there on a on a saturday afternoon and it's got a really cool sort of village like right vibe and, to and what's it. cool is there's a lot of characters that still live there that yeah. connect the past to the present like you've got george who owns the barber shop he's been there 45 minimum years. 45 years and he mm-hmm. plays chess in his window i mean he's a, he's a staple and and you've like you you ronnie really, who ronnie he's, shovel up, he's, he's got to be about 90 now but he still buzzes around in his yeah. locker at a million miles an hour yeah and until about i don't know five six years ago he was still like you know shoveling the front of our wow front of our businesses for 15 bucks a shot or yeah. whatever it was it's pretty cool and he's been there he's been living in the, he's been he's Literally, I think he's very close. He to was born house. in that house, and he was born in that yeah. house on Degrassi. And he's in his nineties. Yeah, well, not Degrassi, no, no, he's on Salter Street. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's um, there was a place in 
in, in the storefront of Table 17 before we took it over was a place called Newell's. It was one of these like neighborhood bars where they sold like fried ham sandwiches. Diner, and yeah. Labatt 50s for three fifty a bottle. Right. And, and like, you know, the neighborhood color colorful people would go in there. Ron had a chair in there with, with the, the, a plaque that said the mayor above his chair. And like right. it was an institution, right? I remember one night we're at Table 17 and it's like, I don't know dinner service is kind of slowing down 9 30 10 o'clock like on a wednesday and i'm standing there chatting with mikey our bartender long time employee and um this dude walks in he's kind of looking around like confu- confused confused yeah. and he's like like what's the he's like it's like is this newell's and we're like oh it used to be newell's yeah like a long time ago and he's like oh Man, I wanted my first beer to be at Newell's. I'm like, what do you mean your first beer? He's like, I just got out of jail. He just got, just out, of got out of jail. Just got out of the can. He's like, wanted to come right back to his favorite drinking wow, hole and have a beer. Fantastic. And like everything had changed. Like I felt, I'm like, wow, wow. this guy's world is different. Um, when we first opened there, the Don, the Don Jail was still, still open. open. Yeah, Don Jail was still. So open. it's not. No, no, it's a hospital now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always, I don't know. I just have a shutter walking by but, that building. But, yes. but so, guys would get. Like yeah, released from the Don Jail, and they'd wander down to Queen Street, and they'd be looking for <laughs> a, cu- have a couple of pops, couple of yeah, <laughs> have some drinks before they uh, yeah. steal some primer and go back in the slammer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, the color. So that that whole like rich experience of being in the East End, right? Uh, having what three at, at the height, maybe three yeah. locations at yeah. that time. That's right. Uh, what what had you wanting to bust out to? expand out of the neighborhood or was that not even a thing it's like i just think there were just there were other opportunities that presented itself and and yeah we yeah we had most of our businesses in the east end and and that was great and i think we'll always have a presence in the east end for right. sure right. um you know but we, we we saw opportunities to sort of branch out and we always sort of felt too and whether this is misguided or not but being in the East End, we always felt like we were overlooked. Okay. The work we were doing, the product that we were putting out, the type of hospitality, the type of employers we were mm-hmm. or continue to be. And and I, both of us always felt like, you know, as soon as you get over the east of the Don Valley, you got no respect. <laughs> <laughs> and and we wanted to, I think part of it, I think, I think part of it was probably a bit of ego too, you know, like let's go, let's Go downtown. Let's get you know. Go to the West sure. End and and you know, see what we can do. Mm-hmm. And before before we even opened something in the East End, we actually opened another Leslieville restaurant at Gar- which still operates right. Gardelast. About right. four or five years ago, we opened that at the corner of Carlon Dundas, attached to the Crows Theater, which is the first dramatic arts theater, new built built in years, and and it was built like in Leslieville. So yeah, and as you can see, like Leslieville continues to like drive arts and culture forward in a way and you know that's been a great project for us and and it's in the, like you could walk from Ascari and Oteca to Gardelast in about 10 minutes mm-hmm. um, but totally different concept and, and different vibe and a bit of a different neighborhood and, and, and quite actually it's a French pretty brasserie pretty right? different clientele too and very different ways. clientele yeah. it's very super interesting how that mm-hmm. yeah different mm-hmm. clientele and I mean of course there's some parallel regulars but and so yeah we had had like so we had High low bar still. We had Ascarian Tech. We had Garda last. We had like uh, moved on from the Bravi Hotel. We're like, okay, so like someone called us with a project in the West End. We're like, is it time? Is it time for us to like not be in this neighborhood anymore and, and do some other things? And and we, I think it was. It was it was time for us to do that. It was we were 12, 13 years into the business, maybe more, fourteen right. years, and uh, yeah, we didn't want to be known as just the guys who have restaurants in the East End. The East End Mafia. And not that we don't love operating there. Like, honestly, we're super grateful to all of the clientele that is... continue to, like, support us there. Yeah. But how many places can you open in one 15-minute walk? Right. right? Mm. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. So then uh, I guess King Street was the, like, Ascari King Street yep. was the That's the west. one. Okay. That's, that's the only, I, I shouldn't say the only, but yeah, it's. The only restaurant we have in uh, West End. Interesting project, right? Like talking entrepreneurially as operators, uh, new build mm-hmm. that you guys are on the retail level of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's entirely new, which means that you weren't like Table 17 style inheriting anything. You had Correct. to build it from scratch. 
that experience itself. I guess after the hotel project, probably you know you had some chops in that. Yeah, we'd done side it. Of I mean, we did it with Garda Last as well. We did that it with was, the, that right, was a similar right. thing because that was brand new. Isakaya well, yeah. was, was, was a was a pretty very close to it. I mean, it was a retail store, but it didn't have anything that would mechanically that was a from scratch build. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to be honest, like we understood the the construction process really well. Sure. Um, understood the design process really well. Um, so it wasn't, you know, we went into that project with our eyes wide open. Uh, and then, you know, from a build point of view, you know, we always use the same, uh, like construction partner, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, who's a, a construction management company that focuses on restaurants and we've had a long standing relationship with those, uh, people. So we, you know, we were felt to be in very, very safe hands. And, and, uh, and so we, again, we were able to actually turn that project around really quickly as well, given the, given the size and the scope of building that restaurant out from basically a concrete box. Is um, that, and is that a condo? Like, do you guys own that or is it no, your, no, we you rent, have a landlord? We have a landlord. Okay, so okay. it's one of the big landlords in Toronto. Um, and then there's offices, there's, it's a 16 story building and it's primarily, uh, the building's primarily occupied by Shopify. And, right. Our friends. Yeah. And Indigo. And, and Indigo. Um, those are the two sort of main tenants in there. I think there's a couple of other ones, but they're very, very small. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, it was a, it's a beautifully designed building, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of right in the heart of the action. Um, and, uh, we just thought it was a, a good opportunity we know the landlord a little bit as well, so there was some familiarity there. Sure. So all the pieces of the puzzle sort of, you know, fit together. But it was an it's it, it was and continues to be a fairly ambitious project. It was it was pretty expensive. Yeah. Certainly a lot more expensive than anything we had done um, previously and independently. Right. Um, yeah, rent's got to be ridiculous. In that, it's not cheap. Yeah, it's not cheap. Yeah, retail. I don't know. I don't. And this, then, there'll be a calling of these rates, hopefully, or yeah, know, it seems like. But I would like to. I I wish. But like I, from I, your I, mouth to God's ears. I remember. <laughs> I don't think so. When we were considering expanding all over the place, you know, 2018, 19, and I started doing audits on uh, opportunities because Startwell is all about retail access, right? And walk right. in straight into your mm-hmm. office or meeting or whatever. Um, I was so shocked to see ghetto landlords on Queen Street West in dilapidated 100-year-old buildings charging $120 a square foot mm-hmm. right. when office still at that time was, you know, averaging at 50 bucks. 50, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it, it yeah. will, it will so we're somewhere in yeah. between there on in our in our spot, but um uh yeah, it's yeah, it's an interesting. So, let's talk about the maybe return to or refocus a little bit on the East End because you guys in the last little while opened up uh, a new evolutionary step in indeed in what you guys do. It's not hmm. just about restaurants. Correct. Yeah, well, I mean, that was born out of necessity in many ways. Um, and we're talking, of course, about the American... Mercatino, yeah. Mercatino. So our retail, our retail. The shop. And that was really born out of the, out of, you know, when we went into full survival mode a year and a half ago yeah. when everything was closed down. Um, and we started selling wine out of Ascari and Oteca as like a little retail boutique kind of stuff. And then we started adding on different products and some prepared foods and meal kits and, and things of that nature. Right. And it started to go really well. Um, and, and then we, and then we were allowed to open the restaurants again, but only outside. So mm-hmm. we had only outdoor dining. Right. And then we continued to use the indoor space as a retail store. Um, and it was great. It was another great avenue to connect with different customers that maybe don't necessarily go out for dinner. But, you know, there was just, there was so many, there was so much upside to it. And we thought to ourselves, you know, like, okay, well, indoor dining is going to come back eventually. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do with this new little business that we've created? Yeah. To like, what degree can you commit to this evolution? You know, mm-hmm. like repurposing of space is mm-hmm. difficult to commit to as a, as a, someone renting the totally. space. You know? mm-hmm. Totally. And then as luck would have it, there was a place just down the way um, that, that came available on the same block on the opposite corner. Um, that was a sort of a cafe mm-hmm. um, type situation. It was all sort of pretty much like beautifully done, really, really well set up. We had a pre previous friend of the relationship with the landlord, the people that own the building, and they were good customers of ours and stuff like that. And we thought, well, what the hell? Let's just uh, let's just take the space over. We worked out a really 
great, uh, really, really nice deal with the landlord in terms of sort of helping us get get going. Mm-hmm. And we we sort of fashioned this place out like a re- like a proper retail store. So it's like a little bit, it's like a wine boutique, prepared foods, coffee, get a glass of wine, you can sit outside. Like it's sort of this is this really cool little sort of hybrid. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta say that it's. It'd be- we got to mention when mm-hmm. we talk about this concept that yeah. it would not be possible without a regulatory change that happened with the government. Right, 100%. And, and that is the ability for restaurants to sell closed bottles of alcohol with takeout. Right. And so that regulatory change was in a, a very, very important um, evolution of the liquor laws in Ontario and what we hope to be one step of many. And in, permanent in, in, because it is made. Yeah. It is permanent now. It is okay. Yeah, they made it. Per- it was temporary for a year, and then they made it permanent last January. And that um, that regulatory change is kind of the first drop over the waterfall of changes that we need in the liquor and uh, alcohol regulations in this city, uh, in this province rather. Yeah. To, to move. No, basically to make our jurisdiction competitive with other jurisdictions because we're not at the moment. Right. And so that was huge. And and not just for us. That model has been followed in many neighborhoods around town. Um, it, even if you're not a bottle shop or a retail store selling food and alcohol together, even if you're just a restaurant, the ability for people to say, I like that bottle of wine. Can I buy one to go yeah, home? Absolutely. It's shocking. Or not feel like a criminal kind of- Walking out the door yeah. with a bottle of wine, which is so crazy that in our society that that was- so restricted. Wrong and restricted. And it clearly was never wrong, but it was restricted. So I, I think that that regulatory change was huge. Right. And we got to tip our hat to the people in government who understood what they were, who they were helping when they did that. And it yeah. was people like us to survive and then create new vibrancy in neighborhoods, like create new venues. And no one wants to compete with the LCBO. What we want to do is compliment. Sure. And, you know, it is really important to the, I think, the fabric of neighborhoods right. that people are able to buy prepared foods and a few cans of beer and a bottle of wine and like a, a nice yeah. aperitif for tomorrow or something yeah. to finish their meal at home. It's not something you don't find in the LCBO because, frankly, the LCBO can only do so much. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think that the liquor controls historically have been limitations to the evolution of entrepreneurialism. Uh, in the hospitality sector. 100%. And it's a weird one because I think everyone until a couple of years ago kind of like hated, uh, you know, the fact that even if you were licensed, you had to buy from uh, the person, the institution that is making money from all over the place. And that doesn't change. Yeah, it doesn't change. It's still, everything's overpriced in this province. Yeah, the the tax situation isn't changed. And and to be frank, you know, we would never argue about changing what, the retail taxes for people. What mm-hmm. we would like to see is the next step is that wholesalers sure. like us, like people who buy and resell alcohol, buy at wholesale prices. can buy at wholesale prices. Right. <laughs> Which when yeah. you tell someone from the States or Europe that we pay the same price people pay off the shelf, they're like, what? Uh, how do you make any money? And exactly, yeah. So yeah, that question. that's part of the, the, the challenge that we have to continue to overcome in this province. And I think that, you know, also the reach, like if, if you live in a small town or, or a suburb, you, sometimes you got to drive 15 minutes to get to an LCBO. That's ridiculous that you mm-hmm. to buy a, a case of beer or a bottle of wine. You've yeah. got to drive so far. Like, why can't neighborhood stores, pubs, restaurants be that community service as well? Right. Agreed. 100%. Chin chin. Chin chin. <laughs> There's my no. political rant for the afternoon. No, but I totally agree. I totally agree. And it's, it's funny because the it's tough to get into politics because it's like a rabbit hole, right? Um, but that's not politics. That's, no, I know. I was public just prefacing policy. what yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, it's public policy. It's yeah. not, not one party over the other. Every party yeah. that's been in power in the province of has failed to enact progressive changes to the liquor law. So it's yeah. not political. It's completely just good entrepreneurial business policy. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I mean, so what I was going to say is that um, it's funny that the media, a lot of mass media has has politicized the narrative around this issue is what I was going to say because, uh, you know, applauding certain politicians or demonizing other ones on this issue as championing the rights of entrepreneurs and the small businessmen on the street trying to make a buck. And these poor guys, they need all the help they can get becomes the rhetoric mm-hmm. when the truth is, at least from my vantage, that macro optics are 
uh, you know, really the issue, getting mm-hmm. over people's fear paradigms, yes. educating the population um, differently than perhaps, you know, could have happened as the pandemic measures, um, protection measures were rolled out and scare tactics became the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, and I think that's that's the thing that's going to have lasting, lasting effects on this industry is like promoting the ability to get back to that neighborhood vibe, no matter where you are in the city, um, across the board to encourage pedestrian interaction with retailers. One of the things we've been lobbying for um, is that the governments of all levels spend as much time, money and effort encouraging people now to go out and support these businesses, create real programming efforts with serious dollars. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Spend the same money doing that as they did telling people to stay home. Yeah. Because they did the damage to our, and rightfully so. I'm not complaining about telling people to stay home at the right time, of course. But now that damage is ingrained in our psyche. We need to Get get out of that, shift it. And governments have a responsibility now to say, hey, if you're double vaccinated, go. Exactly. Spend your money. Yeah, have fun. Have relax. fun. Chill out. Like, like give these people their livelihoods back. And we see it all over the world. Like, a good uh, mm-hmm. chunk of my career history was in music, and uh, I partnered with the BBC on music festivals in England, right? That was one of our stop dates. London, Bombay, New York, Toronto were the, the dates or the annual cycle that I'd go on around the world. Um, but, yeah, in England, you're seeing a return to festival life. Yes, mm-hmm. And that was a place arguably harder hit, you know, than Canada ever was. And continues to be. Right. But they've they've found a way to get on with their life. Right. Um, and that's that's what we have to do here. Um, I know, you know, it's still tenuous and there's still the future's somewhat uncertain. But, sure. But at, at, there's a certain point at which we have to just live our lives yeah and say hey there there is there has been and uh whatever the the solution exists to the problem that we scared you all about (laughs) and uh exactly if you're double vaccinated and this is like again applause for the measures of Mm -hmm. you know vaccine passports where it becomes something that helps the unvaccinated um encourages yeah encourage them to get vaccinated politics aside around you know people's fear paradigms on either side of that issue um, for those who are, absolutely, get together, do your thing, right? Mm-hmm. Don't wear, yeah, don't don't limit your ability to interact with each other. I think that's the, mm-hmm. the big thing for us anyway here at Starwell is like, yeah. we really want to see people being able to collaborate and innovate, and that yes. comes from working together. It's not yeah, from... Yeah, and you can't do it over Zoom. No, All, honestly. Like, that that has its purpose and time and place, and it's useful, but... Yeah, it's not a the, 24-7 thing. The days of... The Zoom meetings all day long are certainly for me. They're done. Oh yeah, yeah. And we've. I mean, it's like it's like I was telling you guys before we jumped in the in the in the room, right? Is that um, we're seeing an evolution as Startwell. We're seeing an evolutionary step in the, you know, I guess operational mechanics of businesses, small businesses, particularly medium sized, some publicly listed large companies with thousands of employees like Shopify, who come to us saying, okay, look, we're not sure what's going on right now. Uh, we want to be remote first, right? We, and, and we want to do that not to shed OPEX because that's just douchey. Like a lot of people are, have done that. And a lot of our tenants did that. A lot of our member companies did that at the beginning of the pandemic. They were like, yay, we can wash our hands mm-hmm. of this operating expense that's called rent by making sure that the slaves, you know, do their work from home all day long, all night long and answer emails at midnight. Um but at the same time, with every company that you know is of that ilk, there are so many that have woken up in the last little while saying, you know what, we'd love for our staff to be able to not think of two or three weeks a year as their holiday time. Right. Be able to say their career and their belonging to us as an organization facilitates their lifestyle as they want it and make holiday, work, life all more congruous by giving people the freedom to commune when they want, as long as they're getting what they need to get done done. It's interesting. I think you could take the same approach to a more macro level of like planning because I think what we've realized with the pandemic is that it may have been a mistake in cities like Toronto where there's a neighborhood to work, there's a neighborhood to live, and there's a right. neighborhood to play. Right. That we see now 
is a huge mistake because the businesses in the neighborhood where you work are devastated. Yep. And the business in the neighborhood where you live are thriving because right. no one left their house. So like the core in Toronto, like the fact that nobody lives there, like we, of course there's some buildings, not, right. I shouldn't say nobody, but like, uh, the the fraction of real estate there for for living versus office is minimal. Yeah, and there's a real I think movement now, and there should be continued movement to rezone, to change the way we think about the core in those buildings, and maybe take an approach like they do in Japan, where every neighborhood is work live play. Yeah, there's right. bars on third floors of neighborhoods, and then there's the next door building is a, a an apartment building. Next door sure. building's an office building. Well, I think a great example of that type of thinking actually is what's being built just down the way here the yeah, well agreed oh the well the massive where the complex old, yeah where the old, because that's a per- perfect example of um business like offices retail and right. residential it's yeah, the it's biggest not. sort of mixed use project of that nature in canadian history as far as i'm aware it's yeah, literally millions. It's currently, of square the biggest feet. currently the biggest construction project in the country. I, yes, I, I love that kind of stuff, but I do also think that it's fucking horrible, um, in the sense of shopping mall culture that is so pervasive in North America. What right. we want to mm. see, Fair you enough. know, as someone who waves the placemaking flag and actually used to work with the Project for Public Spaces mm-hmm. in New York, um, you know, one of the great advocacy organizations historically uh, pushing this movement of a return to cities, right? The Jane mm-hmm. Jacobs, William White kind of stuff mm-hmm. is like, we want to see street life mm-hmm. evolve, right. you know? And it's not just about like our patios allowed to be open or blah, blah, blah. Um, and that takes planning. That takes will. That takes... But it means people who live in neighborhoods understanding that in order to keep their neighborhood vibrant... They have th- to participate. They have to have offices there, too. They have yeah. to let people like rezone a couple buildings, and, and they have to allow certain things to happen there that they traditionally wouldn't love. And maybe some mixed-use or higher-density stuff so that it, the, the pressures of urbanization even out. Because right now, in, especially in Toronto, they're concentrated in these very, very in small pockets. pockets. Yeah. And I think it makes for a very artificial and um, challenging way to live and also do business right because as a business person you're like oh well you have a restaurant like say uh you know etobicoke lakeshore where it's all condos like the only thing you can do there is nighttime and like there's no office like i imagine lunch there might be dead you know like and then in the the core people close their business at 8 p.m because everyone's gone right like that just doesn't like why if you're paying rent all day long you should be able to create demand 24 like the whole day long challenging to do that given the zoning and the delineation that happens in our city and i think it just it, it's the next step of maturation yeah of the urban concept we think of as toronto yeah because we've got we've got so many historical ills that plague to this day our um rate of evolution in this city you know and i think mm-hmm. you know the gta concept uh, is so problematic <laughs> You know, for so many reasons. Yeah, because it takes away the character of every neighborhood outside of actual Toronto. Like, and then the popular, you know, there's this popular aesthetic, you know, tip the hat to people like Drake, who kind of sell the, uh, you know, let's call it a brand. Uh, it's not Toronto. It's the six. And they're selling this brand of something that's an Instagram lifestyle. It's mm-hmm. King Street West. Mm-hmm. You know, it's bling bling. Mm-hmm. Bling bling, as my daughter says. She says, <laughs> Daddy, look at this bling bling. It's not a bracelet. It's bling bling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was different when the nightlife was in the clubbing district, you know, and was College Street. Mm-hmm. Those two neighborhoods had character for their purpose in a sense. And then the hybridization of that kind of like dining, nightlife, photo-worthy you know, I'm so cool in a global context that's homogeneic mm-hmm. aesthetic, you know, kind of also robs the, I don't know, it kind of robs the neighborhoods where that part happens uh, from authenticity, from also pedestrian participation, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't want too much of anything in one neighborhood. I yeah. Think that, and I think that's what's great about, say, like Riverside, where we open table 17 it's a real mix there's people who work there during the day there's film studios like five minute walk away right. there's like a like a historical neighborhood to our north um 
and there was also some industrial stuff not too far away. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the kind of mix we need. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think of the most vibrant neighborhoods in New York, you think of like Soho and the West Village, and these are neighborhoods that have everything going on. People cities work. within cities. Yeah. Uh, whatever the depth of experience is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hey, this we're trying to bring that experience to this neighborhood. Toronto learned its lesson with the nightclub district in, um, you know, where the fa- the old fashioned district there, where yeah. it turned into only clubs in those old abandoned buildings for ten or fifteen years, and we saw the problems that that brought. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, no, 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 we we need to build some condos here. We need to build some office towers here, and we need to change. Like, it cannot be just one thing. And mm-hmm. I. I'm excited for what's coming, but hey, like COVID has said, hey, the downtown core, the financial districts specifically, needs more diversification. It's going to be interesting. Who knows what the long-term impact of this will be, but as, uh, let's call it, the occupancy levels of the urban core, uh, particularly commercial real estate, mm-hmm. remain uh, high for against our history. You mm-hmm. know, if they stay at... Published rates around 10, 15% unpublished, maybe as high as 25%. Scary, we're becoming Calgary kind of thing. Um, if that continues, I kind of applaud that because, you know, we're going to, landlords are already, I have meetings with people who are who are already thinking of repurposed space, uh, mixed space, modular use cases, uh, seasonal use cases. Um, it's difficult because typically our landlords in the core here in Toronto are three, uh, you know, mega corporation type uh, bureaucratic pension funds. Yeah, they're not super entrepreneurial. No. Yeah, so they're kind of like ways. ideas, ideas. Let's f- have five years of meetings on it, and in the meantime, we'll hold the space for anyone who wants to lease it, kind of thing. Right. Uh, and then rents haven't gone down in those buildings, uh, so I, I don't know. I think there's hope for um, people making the other neighborhoods definitely do more for them than perhaps evolving the downtown core. Um, but also something interesting that I've seen in the last little while is, is or this summer, was uh, how the GTA swarmed the harbor front. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting to see because... And swarm's a good word if you ever drove <laughs> by the lakeshore on a Friday afternoon, yeah. Saturday afternoon. Holy moly. Like, yeah, you, you, true, true. Right? And well, so I think one thing about the last 18 months is it's forced people out of their comfort zone to explore different parts of the the GTA of the city. And so I know from my experience, like I would take my family, we'd go for walks on Saturday afternoons, go to different parts of the city, different parts of the lakeshore. I mean, I've lived here most of my life. I had no idea existed. Yeah. And so that was one good thing is like that discovery of, you know what, there's a lot in the city to see and to do and to get out and to experience that, you know, when you can sometimes be stuck in your, in your little neighborhood um, mm-hmm. and not be forced to the, to explore but you know during covid you know there's only so many times you can walk around your own neighborhood it's like enough yeah. already like let's and and it's reconditioned else yeah and, and what's and, cool is that it's it's kind of taught people about the value of neighborhoods so hopefully mm-hmm. people do seek out other neighborhoods to participate in you know yeah i i definitely agree it's like it's it's needed for the continued evolution of the city for fun things kind of being more sustainable that aren't yeah. just like private equity backed, no. you know, XYZ Moroccan fusion restaurants. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things that I take away is that I never really fully appreciated just how lucky we are in the city to have such extensive green space. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a big and, part of the city. trails yeah. and this and ravines. And I mean, I knew it was there and I don't live far away from a ravine that we'd, you know, go walk the dog in, but I discovered so many different places in the city where you can get out and be outside and and that I think was something that I think maybe a, a lot of us took for granted or take for granted but it's a pretty unique thing about the city and one benefit of the last 18 months is that we were for we were sort of forced to make those discoveries and I think that's a good any thing. particular anecdotal park that you want to shout out nope <laughs> like don't crowd my space it's my private space <laughs> smart smart yeah I love Cedarvale Park that's that's the park that no yeah. one outside of our neighborhood kind of knows I go there a lot yeah and yeah. we live just just a, a block from Cedarvale Park mm-hmm. so uh, it's brilliant It's and again like to that diversity issue I mean there are a number of parks that have off-leash dog park areas mm-hmm. they have splash pools for kids um, the youngins that don't have kids won't know what a splash pool is or a splash park or whatever 
but there's water that you can jump in and out of, you know, and then tennis courts, mm. right? There's tons of stuff. Sports places, private spaces. There's a lot of really nice mm-hmm. parks, I agree. Yeah, and, the, and you know, I know Eric's got three kids. I have a, I have a little one, and... I've discovered every splash pad in the city. Yeah. Like, man, you want, you need to, I can't go to the same one again. Give me a new splash pad. Yeah. Cause you need to invent new games for each uh, one. And yeah. So, it, but yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I did enjoy discovering the lake, especially westward, like mm-hmm. Tobacco, Mississauga. There's a lot of great parks with, with actual beaches. Yeah. That mm-hmm. like little mini kind of private beaches. Like people know about them, but they're not swarmed like the lakeshore in, right. in the downtown. And that was that was lovely. Um, and we invaded a lot of neighborhoods this summer, <laughs> and, and and made some noise and, and had some fun. Yeah, no, I th- I think it's great. And again, oh, there's a cool uh, kebab place here. Mm-hmm. I need to check out this kebab yeah, joint. Right. And I call Eric. I'm like, dude, there's a cool kebab. <laughs> like we like that kind of stuff. And like, yeah, wait, when you say kebabs, what kind of kebabs are you talking? This about? This was Afghan. Yeah, Afghan. Okay. Afghan okay. kebabs. Um, and. Uh, I love in Mississauga. There's a lot of good cuisine like that. Yeah. So, and my in-laws are there. So, I I discovered a bunch of those, which I still go to. I enjoy very much. And, and they were doing well, which is great to see. Yeah, it's great to see communities supporting the the you know any business that they like. Right, mm-hmm. you can't Amazon a kebab, and I'm glad for that. Exactly, no doubt. Good. Um, absolutely. So, uh, I think we'll we'll definitely have you guys back. I want to do um. I want to do, I've been saying this for a while, but I'd like to do more of these that kind of bring different voices together from different industries so we could see, compare, uh, you know, what's happening in the city specifically mm-hmm. uh, and the neighborhoods that we exist in. It's nice to know that you guys are down the road. I'm glad this is, that was part of how we came together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to know that you're still post-pandemic down the road. Still kicking it. Still kicking it on yeah. King Street. Still, still grinding it out. I know, right? What can we do? That's all we can do. That's it. One day at a time. One day at a time. Awesome. Uh, for anyone that is watching or listening to this, um, anything you want to shout out about uh, things that you welcome people to participate in at any of the restaurants, the shop, um, or even hires? Because I know that's an issue. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, anybody looking for a job, come see us. <laughs> like for anything. <laughs> we'll train you. Any kind of doesn't job. Matter. Well, yeah, it, it doesn't it, matter. It, 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 it is a challenging. You want to be a cook? Uh, we'll figure it out. We'll labor market out cook. there for sure. Challenging labor market. I would say that, you know, we've become a company now that's not just about restaurants. You right. know, we develop, during the pandemic, we really developed our events and catering company. Mm-hmm. And we do, you know, of course, we delved into the virtual events deep. Right. And, and right. Became very good at that, continue to do that. But also, you know, we're now good at like not just corporate catering like we did before, but really good events like wedding. We've done a couple weddings already this mm-hmm. fall. People are getting back to hundred person weddings. It's great. We're getting leads every day for weddings. Yeah. So yeah. so we we we're welcoming that, welcoming people to celebrate again. Come into the restaurant. Come into the store. Basically, whatever your comfort level is, right. we now can service you in terms of food and beverage, whether it's 100%. walking into a store, buying some prepared food and a lasagna or some of our handmade pasta and a bottle of cool wine, or it's sitting down for like a five-course dinner at Ascari mm-hmm. and having the whole experience. Yeah. And um, we're not, comp- you know, we've, we're back in many ways and we're, you know, we're, as one of our new employees said, we're, we're leaning into things again. We're not mm-hmm. we're not being tentative about our menus. We're not being tentative about our service. Right. We're leaning into it. We want people back in the restaurants. You know, we're, we we do what we need to do to make sure everybody's feeling comfortable and safe and and all that. But um, the vibe is back. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And and we're we're totally leaning into it from a food point of view, from a service point of view, from a wine point of view. Um, no, no more half measures. We're, we're, we're getting back to business and we're going to, we want people to come in, have fun, be blown away, um, and provide, um, you know, hospitality experience that we've been working towards perfecting yeah, for like, 17 years. We've exactly. been telling our, we've been telling our customers, like our customers, our staff for, for a decade and a half, we're in the good times business. Yeah. And the past 18 months, <laughs> the we, good have, times business. we haven't yeah. been providing good times. We've been providing stuff. Yeah, right. And it's we're like, serviceable. It's, yeah, it's like, here's some stuff. Here's some stuff. And now we're like, no, no, no. Like, like, it's not about taking an order, putting it on the table. Yeah. It's like, remember why people leave the house have fun yeah. it's experiences yeah. right? yeah and we we're want you to have a good time theater yeah and so so it's exciting to 
it was tough to transition back. Like we've had a few months of like, oh yeah, we got it. Like yeah, some it, back and forth. We're not lockdowns. We're, we're so. not trying to offer everything to everyone anymore. We're like, hey, we're gonna go back to the core of why we do what we do. Yeah, and provide that good time. Like it because, was really hard though. I'll tell you what, it was really hard to get back into that mindset. Because mm-hmm. For eighteen months, is all about surviving. It was all about figuring out new streams of revenue to keep the doors open. It was Amen. Built, it was yep. building, you know, a completely new businesses. Every week, new you business. Know, something was different every, you know, and you throw stuff at the wall and sometimes some would stick and some wouldn't, but like the mindset was completely, completely different. Right. And then we started opening up the restaurants again. We opened them all up on the same day back in June or whatever it was. But we kind of forgot what we did before. <laughs> Yeah. Like it was sort of like, wait a second, what, yeah. are, we, what are we doing here again? You grow like, in so many different ways. Like, wait mm-hmm. a second. Yeah. What's so the core? To get back to like the, the the root of like hospitality and the in-person dining and all that and, and, and what we were actually trying, the experience we we're trying to provide. Right. Like that wasn't like a light switch. Like yeah. we're still like, wait a second, this is what we were doing in 2019. Why the hell didn't we think about this four months ago? Mm-hmm. Like it's all there. So getting the, your brain and the and the team's brain back into that type of disposition, for lack of a better term, has been way harder than I thought it would have been. But I'm likening it because I've we've gone through the same journey here at Startwell in many ways. Uh, I'm likening it to you know when you when you go strength training, and I know all of us have been out of the gym for a while. Yeah, you lose your so, muscle memory. Yeah. yeah, but like, do you remember when you're like you're deadlifting or doing whatever you're doing in the gym, and you get stronger and you hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you hurt more the next day, and then you hurt even more the third yeah. day. Then suddenly you feel strong and enabled, and it's like that hurt is is. Yeah, I sort feel of... like we're like day two of hurt. Exactly, <laughs> but we, we know still got, we still got a couple of yeah. more days we, of hurt. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But we've done the lifting. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. done the lifting. We made the commitment. Yeah, made the commitment. Got the gym pass. Made the commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean does the commitment translate to debt in our situation? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, we won't talk about that. That's a whole other. Podcast. That's a whole. That's another podcast. It is. <laughs> it's a great podcast. Uh, talk about how the hell you survived this. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'll tell my story and then and then pass the baton to other people. Right. Well, it was wicked catching up, guys. Thank thanks, you, Casim. Thank yeah, you for joining me on the podcast. Okay. Awesome. Cheers. Bye bye.